Hi, I'm Sammy. And I'm Sasha. And this is Security Fast Forward. Sponsored by the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies at Claremont McKenna College. My name is Lexi Rowe, and um, if you can't tell, this is my first time doing a podcast. I'm typically doing events live, like webinars and whatnot. Um, I'm a wargamer or a wargaming analyst, and that covers a wide variety of topics from scenario development to a um, little bit of game design, um, personality management, facilitation, all that good stuff, and mainly for the Department of Defense. And so this has kind of allowed me to not only connect with a wide variety of people, um, but also kind of find my niche and find what I like to do and um, allow me to actually use my degree, which is like one of my big concerns uh, when I was graduating five years ago. So yeah, CMC alum, if, if that wasn't obvious. <laughs> and do you wanna tell us a little bit more about your degree and actually your thesis? Cause I think that you touched on it being quite interesting as well. Yeah, so um, when I was at CMC, my focus was East Asia. And so when I came in as an international relations major, um, the program was structured around like you focusing on a specific area or country. Um, and actually, right in the middle of, of kind of my, my studies there, there was this transition where hey, like things are so global now, um, maybe we need to focus on like functional areas or, you know, stuff like international relations and technology, or um, in my case, international relations and security studies. Um, so a lot of good classes on war and military history and um, all that type of stuff kind of filled the latter half um, after I got of my undergrad, after I got back from my study abroad. So um, yeah, that led me to my thesis, which was on the weaponization of artificial intelligence and um, really interesting case study, right? Um, in looking at how a new technology in the past hundred years uh, has led to an arms race. And so what are the hypotheticals and what things um, in the research behind artificial intelligence could potentially lead to something similar to an arms race in the international system. And then who would our players be? Um, so basically everyone could be a player because technology is so cheap now, hint. That's super interesting. Have you seen any of the things that you might've predicted in your thesis kind of play out in real life afterwards? Any of that trickle into your work today? Um, I, don't, I would say into my work, yes. I, I've seen a lot of um, defense hubbub. You could even read about it in the news um, around getting artificial intelligence for basic things like logistics. Um, and then obviously the next step would be if they, if they meaning the, the military, would like to introduce that. Um, other countries are definitely looking at introducing artificial intelligence into their, you know, conventional or, um, you know, ground fighting forces. What's really interesting is um, artificial intelligence does not have to make all of the decisions for a warfighter, right? It can serve as a supplement. It can um, kind of be, I guess, if you're, if you are in a group project, your artificial intelligence is just kind of like your group member who does part of the work for you. So um, really interesting to see how that's coming about. And then obviously the commercial side of that um, outside of the military and how they're kind of developing their machine learning and artificial intelligence assets. What do you view the worst case realistic artificial inter intelligence scenario to be? Um, so like the nerd in me wants to say age of Ultron, right? Like you get, you get a super intelligence because um, most artificial intelligence can be made quite dumb right like but you get a uh i don't want to say self-fulfilling but a like self-writing um an artificial intelligence that has way too much authority over where it can be what it has access to and at that you give it some sort of physical manifestation right um and in that case i think 
Age of Ultron for all of its, you know, Marvel, Michael Bay-esque glory really captured like, hey, this is actually quite scary. Like in our desire to make things better, we have to consider consequences of um, giving something you don't have control of. You don't have a human, uh, to quote Boyd, on the loop. I do want to pry a bit further on this, Um, particularly since a lot of AI development seems not to be overly concentrated in general intelligence. What do you think, you know, in the next five years, kind of, uh, you know, uh, any detrimental side effects to the development of more of the specific AI programs that probably wouldn't lead to something like Ultron, though, of course, always could? So there's also this whole aspect of currently we rely like in our everyday lives, we rely on artificial intelligence already. Um, I don't know about you guys, but when my phone is on the other side of the room, I just asked Siri to do something. Um, and Siri is like our most basic artificial intelligence or I guess, okay, Google or Alexa. Um, kind of in the next five years, and you've already seen it with this internet of things with um, more and more things becoming connected to like cloud services that Alexa resides on and operates off of, um, you you expand your vulnerabilities, right? And I hate to be the pessimism about it, but you know, it's we've seen DDoS attacks come from having so many things want to be smart and linked in because it's just so easy to use an artificial intelligence to control those things. So um, I think Alexa was the one that had kind of like the the chink in the armor, and everyone wanted to connect their like smart plug and their smart fridge and toaster and this and that. And um, all of those had different IP addresses. And I forget the name of the of the attack itself, but they just became an entire like DDoS thing that I'm not, you can tell I'm not a cyber person, but my impression is they all came together and then um, were able to deny some electricity to a large portion of the country. So yeah, I, I would definitely say next five years, that's probably a little bit more relevant and a little more scary for everyday people. So because we're amidst a data revolution, um, how do you, I guess, plan war games that help prevent events like these from happening? They're so complex, so interconnected and so unpredictable. I think there's, so first of all, war games kind of have the ability to focus on your human decisions that that go behind, um, whether it's investing in a certain capability or a decision in employing um, a certain capability or technology. And so when, when you look at kind of the data revolution and then how war games fit into that, it's really important to note that like, hey, there's there's things that can probably be better simulated because it's just computer v computer. Um, there's also like, hey, we know the adversary could do this, or we know the vulnerability is this, so how do we fill that? That to me is just like identifying the problem and finding a solution. Where you kind of get your your war games is what do you pick and what are you comfortable with? So really good examples when um, the U.S. has to work with other countries or other countries have to work in, with the U.S., and there's different levels of comfort with data integration, with using data um, all that sorts of stuff. You want to make sure you're you design a game with that in mind and say like, hey, are you okay sharing this with them, or are you okay doing data integration? Um, and even at the commercial level, you see that. So you know, uh, the financial sector is highly, highly connected, right? Um, if I were designing a war game for how you know data flows between different national financial institutions, man, like the human decisions just because of all of the different social culture, like types of things that underlie those decisions would just be enormous. Tying together, you know, Sammy's past question with a bit of what we were talking about in AI earlier. uh, Of course, recently there was the pretty massive solar winds hack. you know, it's known that the De- Department of Defense was a customer, and I'm not, I'm certainly not going to ask you about anything you might know on the subject, but I'm curious about how kind of a shift almost in 
kind of cyber warfare that we've seen an increase, if, if you will, since really Stuxnet in 08 and potentially further that the US government started with their actions. How do you plan for kind of the more nebulous region of, of cyber intelligence gathering or even you know cyber warfare that comes out with things like this? Because it wasn't particularly a you know, skillful or zero day vulnerability or anything. It was actually, they went by the playbook and yet they gained massive access to this product used by so many. I mean, look at how many times OPM has been hacked in the past five years. Like goodness gracious, you have every single government personnel whose information is now out there and potentially for sale. Um, not that I have a personal vendetta against that, but also you have credit bureaus, like things that are kind of these pillars of American society that are hacked. And just just for reference, when I was kind of coming up in school, it was all about cybersecurity and this and that. And now it's cyber warfare. It's like, no, going after these things that affect our society, that is war. And to me, in order to kind of employ the capabilities that the U.S. has and develops, you need to classify it as such. So I think we're kind of in that transitional phase where we're not, where we're saying like, oh, okay, like, you know, cybersecurity, like we just shored up our defenses and we're kind of realizing like that was our Magano line. Like, no, it's, it's, it's time to create some offensive capabilities. It's, it's time to create some like attribution to discover who was behind the tax. Are they state state sponsored? Um, are they just malicious individual actors, transnational terrorist organizations, et cetera? And then also determine what is the long-term effect of some of these attacks? Because any type of warfare um, reveals a chink in the armor. The cyber domain is interesting because um, once an attack is, like the go-to phrase is once an attack is used, you know how to defend against it, but almost not really because just like small variations as we've seen, or like like you said, the playbook still works. How does attribution issues in cyber warfare kind of distinguish it in your opinion, perhaps, or if it you know doesn't uh, from more traditional warfare? Because for example, in SolarWinds, they're pretty confident it was Russians, but not a hundred percent. So you look at what policymakers or you know, the higher up strategic thinkers have available to respond. Um, and you, that's where you kind of get this intersection of, okay, if it can be attributed to a state, do I have more targeted actions that I could take? Do I have um, a wider variety of actions I could take either as a compellent or a deterrent? Um, and I think attribution also shows that like some ability to hold someone accountable so if you can't tell I'm a realist but also like a little constructivist in my little heart um where I want people to be held accountable and I do believe in this idea that the international system um relies on some form of collective security but also that one bad apple can essentially spoil spoil the bunch in the international system so when you look at Russia and their cyber attacks when you look at um, China or even a non-state actor in their cyber attacks, what decisions do we want to make and how do we factor those into our calculus? And I don't think we have that answer yet because I don't think we've had to make um, a huge amount of those decisions yet. And I'm also wondering if you've been incorporating different security threats like the environment or moving some of your games into space. Because it seems like this is kind of the direction security is going. Yeah, so I think a really good example, um, and it's it's something we joke about in the office, is, well, you know, if the Arctic ice melts, then Russia's um, beluga whale, you know, information collecting program is viable. And that's like kind of the running joke, like, but actually, you know, climate change does present a unique picture for our Navy and Coast Guard. Um, and even at that, you know, space, I have gone down so many rabbit holes about, hey, what happens in space? What can be done in space? And then just terrified of, I think it's called the Kepler effect, where like, if just two things collide in space, like 
Sputnik from way back when and like Sputnik 2 just happened to collide um the debris and fallout from that would just like multiply by insane amounts and then create more debris and then next thing you know like we're trying to be like Wally getting off of this trash (laughs) atmosphere planet oh my gosh that is so nightmarish um, I've actually become quite the space nerd myself, and I've been hearing how some countries are actually disguising their satellites as space debris um, so as not to be detected. But yes, the space debris problem is terrifying to me. Have you seen a lot of enthusiasm for these types of games, or is it something that you're pushing more internally? Um, what is kind of the attitude towards environmental security within the DOD? I wouldn't say I work with a lot of people who are, you know, warriors for, you know, helping the Maldives, um, you know, discover where to live after their country is underwater or um, this or that. But I think in terms of incorporating changes in the environment, it's something you always put in a war game. And I think the best example is we use the environment um, as injects. And so if you're working down a scenario timeline in a game, and um, just for example, like a historical example is the Battle of the Philippine Sea, right? You have a whole bunch of uh, Imperial Navy or Imperial Japanese Navy, I should say. Um, You have U.S. assets in the area. You have the Aussies coming in to help a little bit. And then um, you have this air and naval battle. So you're coordinating across these different domains. Like if, if I were playing that in a historical game and I wanted to like you know, mess with my participants. Um, I would throw in, you know, a, a quick typhoon, right? Like Philippines gets a lot of typhoons, um, even super typhoons now as they're becoming, but I would just throw that in there and say, okay, you're already dealing with very dated technology. You're trying to coordinate across domains and you're trying to fight this enemy um, who's invested a lot in their Navy, right? The Japanese Navy was quite immense. And um, how do you deal with that on top of like having to do search and rescue now in a typhoon? And I would just want to see the decisions that they make, how they prioritize um, and and adapt essentially to any sort of environmental change. Because I'm of the opinion that, you know, this whole two degrees, five degrees, this or that, we are kind of at the point where humankind, mankind needs to adapt to the environmental changes and determine how they're going to incorporate them. Can I go in with a pandemic example? Absolutely. Is it too soon? No, no, (laughs) it's 2021 now. We're supposed to have moved on. Yeah, right. So really good example is, um, God, I am forgetting the author's name, but he wrote The Hot Zone and The Red Zone. And over here in DC, um, he like there was a, a huge case of monkey Marburg virus, which eventually morphed into Ebola virus and filoviruses are just so hard to eradicate. And then um, that was his first book. And then in the red zone, he goes into talking about how, um, you know, this kind of triangle in between, I'm, I, I want to say Cote d'Ivoire, Sierra Leone, Cameroon, maybe, um, is where Ebola, like somebody literally ate a bat, spread Ebola. And it was because of these cultural ties that nobody understood. People were like, why are they crossing the border into this other country, this or that? It's like, no, they are part of the same tribe. Like people have family ties. And I think the larger organizations didn't understand that there were kind of like stop gates for no don't go here didn't take into account like the family structure of the region or the culture of the region and this and that because then um like one of the main events that they backtraced for the 2014 ebola virus was a healer who had like give like midwifed babies in the region it was like beloved by all had a giant funeral because she died of ebola and open casket 400 people came and ended up that's just like if you want to call a super spreader event that was one of the super spreader events that he had talked about but to me I'm like the people over in the capital city were just so stunned that people were going in between the borders and this and that like the border goes right down through the tribal lands like they're the same family members that's their cousin it'd be like me having to ask 
my governor permission to go to DC. I'm in Maryland, by the way, for those who are listening. Um, It's just not going to happen. So I I see that and I see we have increasingly amount of viruses that are going to come to light, be found in, you know, these caves from the ice age and this and that imagine your doomsday virus scenario and we've kind of seen the ramifications and how the world comes to to stop that's my virus rant that's my pandemic rant it's so important to focus on like the cultural underpinnings of different events and i want to know how you incorporate anthropology ethnography cultural competency in your work and how that helps drive more successful outcomes there and then after i'd love to return to the what is the next big epidemic and how we're planning for it kind of question. So it's like you read my mind when I came out of college and first started working, right? My soapbox when I started talking to people in the military or in defense um, consulting and this and that, it was like China is a huge country, right? Like there are so many different ethnic groups. There are so many different cultures. And I think one of the best examples I had was like, hey, I have a I like, took Chinese for five years. I can speak it, but I have a really hard time understanding what people from Beijing say. Same way that like I grew up speaking Spanish and I have a really hard time understanding like different dialects other than the dialect that I grew up with. Um, like somebody asked me like, what's the Spanish word for truck? Truck, I don't know. <laughs> um, like, yeah, so definitely discredited myself a little bit that time, but my soapbox when it came out was, you know, oh, hey, like, do you understand why Beijing is doing this? Or, you know, what are they going to do in terms of economy? Shanghai is the economic hub. And they have a very different culture than that of Beijing. Um, And you can even, this is excluding everything that is happening in uh, Xinjiang and Zhejiang. So if we want to understand who has the power in the Politburo and in the CCP, um, you kind of have to look at each individual member's backstory and kind of where they're coming from. You really want to understand um, the trends in China and kind of what what they're going to be about in the future, particularly in the term in terms of uh, warfare or uh, even their one China policy or their five year plans. You have to look at one things that they've done in the past, but also um, the cultures that that divide the areas, right? So things are different in Guangzhou than they are in Shanghai. And that was kind of my soapbox coming out of right out of school was one country. Yes. But, you know, same way that America is one country. And I, I kept saying that and using that example, like, Hey, we live in Maryland, which is technically South of the Mason Dixon line, but nobody in Maryland calls it the South. So, you know, think, think of it that way. That seemed to catch on. (laughs) Those different cultural affiliations and ways with which to tether your identity are so important to understand, I think. I think when we talk about things in the international system, like deterrence, and like my new soapbox is hatred against the international relations theories for being too Eurocentric. But um, when we talk about, hey, this is a deterrent for this country, right? A deterrent for country A may not be a deterrent for country B. We talk about the rise of non-state actors, you know, taking that economic sanctions against the country they're operating from, like, do not matter to them. It's different levels of deterrence, and I should say compellence, just to give Schelling a bone here, but um, work for different countries and different actors, and I think that's kind of what we're seeing play out now. And that actually makes me wonder about which actors you plan for? Are they typically state actors, non-state actors like terrorist groups, hackers from abroad that are anonymous, nameless, faceless? What kind of adversaries are you mostly planning for? I would say that there's um, the NDS and the NSS um, from 2018 and 2017, respectively, that call out a variety of things. Um, I think like debt and inequities and clean energy and health being some of them, right, which are ideas. Um, So like the little constructivist in me is very happy about like ideologies or like these ideas of things being globalized and, you know, um, 
or are listed not as a threat, but as like a concern and something we should take into consideration for national security. There is a lot of planning that's done for their countries, right? But um, also at the same time, it kind of depends on, on who you are. So when I'm designing a game or more specifically, if I'm playing a like a commercial game, I look at not who the actor is, but everything below that. And I think a really good example is, um, you know, I'll play a game about, hold on, I'm thinking of like a commercial game that we've played recently. Um, I played a game called Fortress America, right? And so that has a whole bunch of bad guys who are named, I believe, um, attacking the US. And it has some really good, actually, force regeneration mechanics in it. And so, like, my team, um, actually, my teammate is, like, the Ars Mechanica of mechanics and commercial games. But um, he recommended it to us and just for seeing, like, how the adversaries worked. But it ended up, like, that the resource generation mechanic was actually what we were really after and was, like, going to be instrumental for the game we needed to design and build. So... Um, I can go into a little bit more about commercial games if you would like, but basically we plan for anything and everything because uh, that allows us to kind of look below the surface. Like the ice, like the actor who's doing the action is the tip of the iceberg. Everything else um, that influences their decisions or influences the outcome is the iceberg below the surface. If I was designing an asymmetric game, I wouldn't be as concerned with, you know, hey, where are they located, et cetera, unless that influenced the decisions that the player or the sponsor needed to make. Um, I'm trying to think of a coin game from that series. I think one of the, the most basic ones is about the Vietnam War, where obviously there was a wide variety of decisions that had to be made about um, Westmoreland, about sending in different ground forces, about arming uh, different groups in Vietnam and, and kind of how that came about. I would love to see um, somebody nowadays replay the Battle of Algiers, right? Like that whole mess, um, trying to identify cells, trying to determine how the cells were networked and tied together. Because um, we, we know how that ended up for the French, but kind of things that went into their calculus maybe different nowadays and maybe different going forward. Definitely. I think it would be really interesting to kind of backtrack and redo a lot of past wars with the new technology that we have today and see kind of what the outcome would be if we could have done better or who would have won and how that would have shifted. Like what is the next big pandemic? Are you now planning for that? Um, are you making war games that are focused on the current one. There's a lot of great games already out there about um, pandemics or how to work through them. Anything from like a role-playing campaign where you are the director of the CDC and you will have to walk through it. If you have a goal and your goal as the CDC is different than maybe, um, you know, the World Health Organization, you get to see how people make their decisions and then how they interact when they're sitting in those roles strategic or even tactical level um, people work through what to do for a pandemic response, um, how to address things, and then how to work. And I think maybe most importantly, uh, in my opinion, how to work internationally. Um, and, and part of that, I think, is one, playing the role, and then two, um, knowing the tools that you have at your disposal, right, like any good warfighter. So focusing on a different aspect of COVID, uh, you know, there was this research uh, research report from the Center of Economics and Business Research that said that uh, China will overtake the U.S. as the big world's biggest economy in 2028, and that COVID has kind of accelerated this this at least economic rise to power. I was wondering if you saw something, you know, correlated in more on the defense side of things, or how you think that COVID might impact some of the balance of power we see and you know, the U.S.-China relationship and kind of going forward? On, on quite a surface level, COVID has taught us how important the internet is, right? Like, as it, it people fell on the spectrum as to whether or not it was a basic human right. Um, to me, I look at a lot of these smaller countries, uh, 
in the Indo-Pacific. And I wonder, you know, is there more opportunities to get them the internet just at a basic level? And um, if we don't get them the internet, does, does China, you know, bring them the internet? You kind of see that shaking out now with um, 5G. I, I cannot keep up with the drama with 5G. Um, and I and I do say drama because it's China and the US and Canada and now Belgium. And number one, I am at a very surface level of understanding how 5G technology actually works. But then <laughs> number two, um, nuances between who is providing what. I think the one thing everyone can agree on is, hey, nobody should be left out. Like, no country is too small to have the internet. No country is too small to have 5G. It's now just a matter of like, who's going to provide that? And are we posturing for multiple spheres of influence? Um, are we trying to balance against China? What's our ultimate goal? Um, and I don't think anyone is believing that it's, I mean, I would say I'm not believing that it's due to altruism that we would like to give countries uh, the internet. I would like to give everyone the internet, then I could talk to them via these lovely Zoom calls. But <laughs> so it seems like we're on the horizon of a technological cold war. The idea of lessons and how you incorporate that um, or retrospectives into your work and evaluating success within your games. Yeah, so as I said, games can have um, a lot of good qualitative outputs right? And a lot of that comes from how people make decisions. But then on the quantitative side of things, um, it's really interesting to put people, like you said, with new technology in past situations and see if that new technology changes the decisions that they make. Because essentially everything else is the same. They've had the same training, the same adversary, the same playbook for how to go about, like the same vulnerabilities that adversary has. Um, and how do they use the new technology and what quantities and, um, you know, when and timing and all that sort of stuff is comes out of a game. And you can say like, hey, like, maybe this isn't the best case scenario for how to use a new technology, but this is one way. And this is one way that people are comfortable with, or this is one way um, people used. And I guess my favorite thing is when we have use cases and we we do case studies on a specific technology or um, we examine how something's been done in the past and we come up with like a set of use cases and then we say, okay, like go through these. And quite simply, um, you know, sometimes you just kill the bad ideas and that's where, where games can actually really help you in terms of like, hey, what's successful? You're not going to always be 100% successful with a war game, right? If you want to determine like, the best missile to shoot down another missile, this or that, that is a physics problem. I cannot help you there. But if you want to see like where you would like to put it and where you're comfortable putting it and this and that, um, yeah, like you can definitely use a game and you can definitely have at least a, a 60 or a 70% solution as to how you, you get to that bit of a topic change here. So defense and wargaming are both very male-dominated fields. I was wondering if you could speak to your experience as a woman in the field and then also how, you know, presuming you'd want more, more women to work in the field, how you think that that kind of pipeline of talent can be improved? Being a female wargamer, I think I got really lucky just as, as a side note, right? Um, I got really lucky in that the team I was on and the goal we were given was not to continue doing the same thing that had been done. We were in it for new ideas. We were in it for different backgrounds and um, everybody on my team brings something different to the table. And I think part of our excess is attributed to that. And just like quite simply, like, you know, some of my teammates are a foot taller than me. And I said, you know what? Like, I think people are noticing that you first and we're both running this game together. So let me stand kind of like a little bit in front of you using one of those um, high school theater tricks, like of levels, like you stand like about six feet behind me, which we had to do anyways for COVID. And 
um, people will see me first and then they'll like equate us because our heads will be at the same level. <laughs> and he was like, wait a second. Yeah. And so we did that. And then people were like, oh, they're both the boss and they're both in charge of this war game. And so there's like these little tricks that you have to think of and um, use. At that, my team is also very young. So I don't want to say like, oh, I'm the only one like who has to employ tricks and mechanisms to to get people to buy into us as the wargaming experts. Um, I think everyone on my team has to. Um, but I, I think they've also been helpful in me saying like, hey, I've kind of noticed this a little bit. Also, like, I'll just say this outright. Um, I'm definitely the type of person where if somebody, particularly a man, says something to me that is highly inappropriate, is inexcusable, this or that, um, I will tell them that it's inappropriate to their face. Uh, like, I have no I'm here for a job. I'm a professional. Like I've worked to be here. I've worked my ass off. I don't have time for you to tell me how cute my dress looks like F off. And what's your name? Oh, great. You're wearing your badge. Got it. You're reported. Like I'm not, I'm not fucking around here. I think the best example is like, I'm in the middle of a meeting and I also have no qualms about having a small bladder and like going to use the restroom in the middle of a meeting. So I'm in the middle of a meeting. I'm rushing to the bathroom and I'm rushing back and man goes, Miss, I need to stop you. I'm like, who the fuck is this? He's like, I just have to tell you that you are beautiful. I was like, who the fuck do you think you are? Oh, yeah, like full cursing in the hallway right outside um, my office. But like, I'm not, come on, come on. I, like, you can't get away with that because I'm young and because I'm wearing a dress. Like, we're not, this is 2020, this is 2021, whatever year we want to say it is. Um, <laughs> and, and it's, it's frankly not excusable. My eyes, one, I don't have the patience. I don't have the time to stand for it. And second, like if I, if I allow this to happen to me as a professional, like you guys who are, you know, five years behind me, you're going to have to be dealing with the same issues. You're going to have to be dealing with the people talking down to you. You're going to have to be dealing with the people who don't think, you know, oh, you're short or you're a woman or this or that. You can't do your job. Like, I'm, I'll speak up. I'll be the bitch in the room. And then people take, you know, my mentees and my fellow women wargamers behind me seriously. Exactly. Every generation of women really helps advance the following one. So that's something that we really appreciate. And kind of the whole ethos of our podcast is talking to the women who are doing exactly that. Um, going off that, I'm kind of wondering, do you have, do you feel pressure to dress a certain way or kind of embody certain personas with different types of people that you interact with um I'll put it this way I wore a Wonder Woman shirt jeans and a blazer to like a meeting just because that's what I wanted to wear that day and people are like and then somebody complimented me they're like oh are you excited for the new Wonder Woman movie this is like when it was still gonna come out in theater so everyone was stoked um and I was like yeah like they filmed it down in Alexandria it's like yeah like and it was actually like a good conversation piece so yeah I'm a millennial I'm gonna dress like a millennial not to say like for my important you know high level general officer meetings I do not have a suit I have numerous suits I have numerous dresses like I'm, I'm ready if I need to go to the hill I'm ready but um yeah, if if not, I'm not down to be paying hundreds of dollars a month for dry cleaning. Like I have a huge Great Dane. Do you what is it? Like, do I have to feed him or do I have to go consistently do dry cleaning? So yeah, I'm definitely a <laughs> dishwasher safe, machine washable. Like I will wear my black jeans to the day I die. Definitely. I think this is just something that a lot of women, especially in security or in high positions of authority, are kind of conflicted with where it's like, do I opt for the pantsuit? Am I allowed to wear bold colors and prints? Do I wear dresses to kind of reclaim the ability to look more feminine, but also be doing wargaming, which it just seems um, like these are the questions that females have to ask ourselves. I always like to kind of pick people's brains on. So I will say that over my male counterparts, when I have the opportunity to wear a dress and it's hot, um, I will do so. Like, sorry, it's just not like guys can't wear shorts. So you, as much as people are like, oh, like the feminist in you, I'm like, yeah, the feminist in me says that it's hot and I'm sweaty. So I'm going to wear a dress and like, yeah, it's a professional dress, but also like guys can't wear shorts. The Like they still have to wear pants. So I'm going to take advantage of this the silver linings for sure oh yeah <laughs> um and so I'm kind of 
also wondering, a lot of little girls don't grow up wanting to be war game designers, mainly because it's something that's not really presented as a viable career option for, for little girls or seen as something that they can be part of. Um, but you're really helping kind of pioneer that space for women um, and increase like the female presence within that room. So how can we change that? I think, so I was actually talking to um, another student at CMC about this. I wanna say a, a few weeks or a few months ago. And there is no perfect path to becoming a war gamer. I think I'm a really good example of that. Like I, I wanted to just be like, you know, um, a CSIS international studies focus on China and do research in this or that. But I think what's really telling is almost every year I got really stoked um, growing up in California to go to the Northrop Grumman open house and just like see the tech, like see the Mars rover, see what was happening um, and read all about it. Like I would be there first in line um, go through and funnily enough Sasha like Northrop Grumman was one of my first choices because they came to the Harvey Mudd career fair and I happened um, to go and, and talk to them and it, I think that and like my love of just technology in general and like these really cool sci-fi things um, fed into like this this little spark in me like this little fire and um, it, it allowed my inner nerd to come out. So like, yeah, like my international relations and my China studies and, you know, military history was my foot in the door. But what really has like kept me going is kind of like this little kid in me who was, um, I say kid, but I was 17, um, <laughs> who was super excited to go to the Northrop Grumman open house and see the Mars rover. And I think that's kind of um, been my fuel and my spark getting other little girls involved. I think there's so many good initiatives and um, I am a huge fan of like going on Kickstarter and seeing um, who's designing games and video games. I think um, like even last night, I found one that um, some 14 year old, uh, four 14 year old women had um, designed. It's uh, about being underwater and trying to find um, a sustainable source of energy underwater and it's a 2d game um, but they were just like so passionate about it and they're like we don't care it's already designed we just wanted people to know I'm like yes get it but be paid for your work now like that's my other soapbox but like you did it and and like this is a really actually well-designed game you have different adversaries you have like different things that your person can do. And here I am, like, can't get my headphones to work. I'm like, you're 14 and you designed a computer game? Like, that's awesome. Um, and I think we just need more people who are like, not everything has to be perfect. Like, there's just not one path to being a war gamer. Find what makes you passionate. And if you enjoy doing video games, be passionate about any games. If you enjoy playing games as a hobby, but you actually want to do graphic design for work, totally okay. You can still be a war gamer. Like, do what makes you happy. Also, not all war games are actually about war. So, <laughs> Sasha and I, before this recording, we're talking about um, my issues with excessive violence in video games. If you, um, if you really just enjoy playing hobby games or games in general and you're like uh you know war gaming this or that war gaming is kind of like all-encompassing you could play a war game about banks you could play a war game about um how to discover sustainable energy it's pretty much just putting people in a role and and you know getting them to simulate some of their decisions and actions and you can do that you can be a video game designer you can be a board game designer you can do whatever you want Kind of riffing off that a bit, you know, we've been dancing around this for quite some time, but could you walk us through what a day in your life looks like as a war game creator? Um, yeah, so first and foremost, I live by like multiple calendars. Um, and so I have, a, a, I was asked to describe like how my critics would describe me um, recently in like one of these, you know, career furthering sessions for a lean in. And 
I was like, I think my critics would say that I'm particular because I like my calendars for the week for my meetings to be set on Sunday night. I'll log on and make sure they're done. Um, but pretty much my day starts off with either checking in um, with my boss and then I could just kind of get to work and look at my timelines and my deadlines. And so we have, you know, a whole calendar of games for that year. Um, games are in different phases of the design or execution. If we're running a game series, um, I'll try and stay on top of things for that series since the game's already designed, we're just in a prolonged execution phase. Um, and so it's just really a lot of multitasking and managing tasks. Also at the same time, I've just to go back to the pandemic and transition, I'm mainly teleworking now. So there's this huge aspect of like, not just um, doing my tasks, whereas before I would go into the office, my entire team is literally like in one cubicle. We're all near each other. I can just toss, look over someone's shoulder, cool, that looks good, like bounce um, things off one another really easily. I think we've had a little bit of growing pains, but I think they lasted about like a week or two weeks in March. And by the time it was April, we're just like, great, we're going to over-communicate. We have text, we have teams, we have email addresses. We like, no matter what, I always know um, if something terrible goes wrong or if I need help on a game design or this or that, my team is there and we just over-communicate everything. I am interested in hearing a little bit more about the process of making a war game specifically and different levels of complexity there. What does it look like? Because I think a lot of people have this conception of their in their heads of wargaming being a bunch of people standing in a circle and moving little plastic toy pawns from one spot to another. And it obviously is a lot more complex. So if you could kind of debunk the stereotypical image of what wargaming is. Yeah, so that is actually a type of wargaming, right? Miniatures is a very valid type of wargaming. Um, so one, there's the design process. Um, second, there's the different types of war games that my team in particular um, uses. Um, and then there's the incorporation of commercial war games. And like somewhere in there should be this like difference between a war game and an exercise. Um, so just really quickly, um, I'll start with the last one. War exercises like involve the actual tanks, right? Or involve the actual movement. If you are running, um, let's say, uh, what's it really? I, I don't know if they still run run RIMPAC, which was when I was working at the DOD in 2014, they were doing RIMPAC, um, where like all of the different navies in PACOM at the time, now Indo-PACOM, came together and um, said, okay, like you practice sailing this way and I'll practice going this way and doing that with the ships to make sure they could do it. Um, that's an exercise that was that potentially wargamed beforehand? Oh, I have no doubts, right? So a war game is pretty much everything leading up to that. Sometimes when you're trying to use like a new software um, or like a new analytic tool, you could incorporate that into a war game. So it's like that little gray area in between war game and exercise. That's like, a, like just a really quick example. For the most part, exercises are like your iron, your big heavy stuff moving around. Um, war games following everything below that spectrum could incorporate anything from like a seminar style game. So you guys are well enough into your um, educational careers that you've been in probably numerous Socratic seminars. When the subject of those Socratic seminars is um, a battle or a new technology for a warfighter, this or that, that is kind of a war game, right? You're simulating um, what your thoughts are, what your opinions are, and what decision you want to make. Um, you could also do this, like, I, I hate to say it, I love falling back on personal finance examples. So to me, like, my partner and I, whenever we sit down for the month and determine, um, hey, this is the budget we want to consider for doing home improvement projects this month, and we have this back and forth, and it leads to 
us compromising and coming to some sort of cooperative decision. And then we move something and we put dollars towards that decision. That's a really good example of like a seminar discussion-based war game, um, especially because he probably has a different goal than I do, right? Like I really want the bathroom remodeled. He would like a man cave. <laughs> so two different things. And we have to see kind of how those come together. True story. Um, from that, you have a variety of different games that have like tact tactile um, mechanisms. So maps are used a lot, right? You just fairly simply excluding everything in the cyberspace domain. Um, a lot of times you want to consider how things are flowing, um, what things look like. And then sometimes maps are a really good way of visualizing. There's your typical horizontal maps. There's also vertical maps. So as in a really interesting um, game observing at a think tank and rather, and this was a space game and rather than have their they had two maps actually they had a, a European map and then they had a space map and their space map said like okay here's I know nobody who's listening to this recording can see my hands but um here's the ground and like here's the curvature of the earth and then went like to these different atmospheric levels and kind of had like little pictures on that map of like things that could like be at that level and then had little pieces next to it um or I should say like uh empty spots on that game board for you to put the the pieces you wanted to, to take an action within those different atmospheric levels. And that was like a really interesting space map. Um, we also use, as you said, miniatures. You can use representative um, like blocks or meeples or like your little Monopoly houses. Yes, I have stolen my Monopoly house um, things. I've also stolen my life vehicles to like, like say, hey, how do you want to do a delivery? And I'm like, two, two blue guys equals this and two pink guys equals this. And you put them in your little van and show me where you're going to drive them. And besides the point, right? Like people love having something in their hands and something to do. Um, so those are kind of like that, that miniatures aspect. The other types of games are like hex encounter games where you have like a hex map. Um, you can have tabletop games, which are like any sort of board game. Tabletop games are also, um, can be done remote. So like some really good resources for anyone who's listening. Um, Vassal Engine runs a lot of great board games or war games on it. If you're looking for a good starter, that's just a two player, I would recommend Twilight Struggle because it is about the Cold War, but you do play limited wars within that. And there is a nuclear deterrence and nuclear proliferation um, mechanic in there and it's rules enforcing. So you don't have to know the rules yourself. The computer tells you. Um, other great board games are on Vassal, also Tabletop Simulator on Steam. Um, but those games can also be played um, you know, on your actual table or in person. And then there's card-based games um, and role-playing games. There's so many types of games, right? And role-playing games are, um, there's one called Delta Green that my team played off hours. That was really fun and exciting. Um, I don't want to give anything away, but it's like very Lovecraftian. So if you're into like a little bit of that, like spooky sci-fi, play Delta Green, it'll be fun. Um, Dungeons and Dragons is the biggest role-playing game out there. I'm sure everyone has either seen it, heard it, or seen it played in Stranger Things. Um, and, oh man, what other game type did I miss? I think I said miniatures. Card-based is good. And then obviously, um, if you have, you can mix different game types. So I think we talk about the, the game that we played in your class, Sammy, that you had very like notional roles you had, I don't, can't recall, but if I wanted to incorporate a card playing aspect to that, I would give you guys goal cards or resource cards. So like, you know, CDC, deputy director and director have a different amount of resources at their disposal to take their actions, but they're playing in their role. You can put like kind of cobble different game types and different mechanics together in that way. Um, I think that lends itself really well to how my team in particular um, has a variety of backgrounds and uses the commercial game knowledge of not me, but my teammates um, to determine what mechanics fit well, but also like what people will be doing. Because games, there's this whole way of thinking in the gaming community about, oh, games are meant to put you in like, put you in the environment. 
you're supposed to think you're in a war, this or that. I'm like, I don't think that's it. I just think people at a very basic level want to be doing something. Like they want to be touching something. I've given people Excel sheets and I'm like, you're instead of filling out your clue form, you're filling out an Excel sheet because that's what we have during the pandemic. Sorry. Um, and and they're fine with that. And they're like, yeah, like, and they're a lot more engaged players are when they have something to do. So like, that's my player engagement rant is like, give your players something to do. When we design games and when any gamer goes to design games, it's almost like reading a recipe, right? You have to first determine what things you need to be prepped to go to your sponsor. Because a lot of times your sponsor will say, um, what's a really good example? I'll pull like an army example out. They'll be like, hey, I need a board game to help me decide between, um, I'm forgetting the name of it, the JTAC and the MRAP, right? Okay, cool. Like, awesome. I'll throw some things together. You go back, you do your research, you start planning things, you come, you like start thinking of questions that you're going to have for the sponsor. And then you go back to the sponsor, you say like, okay, here are some things that I'm thinking of. Um, here's where my research has led me. And here are some possible game types. I just want to like, like, what are your objectives for this game? Let's nail something down. Um, every game or every war game or simulation, um, or even model for that matter that you have, should have a set of objectives. And from those objectives, you can determine questions that you would like the game to answer or questions that the game will half answer. Um, and then from there, you can start moving into your like design phase. And this is like the fun part where you get to play a bunch of commercial games. Um, if you're on my team, you get to um, work amongst each other. You get to fight about different card types. Um, yes, it's true. Like I am really partial to uh, like hamburger style cards and like somebody else on my team is really partial to uh, soda style cards. And so a lot of times I'm like, no, this is a better as a hamburger card or like soda card. Um, so the, that yeah, those types of um, back and forth and negotiations and ultimately we'll come out with a, with a design, right? Like a compiled design. Hey, we think this answers the question. We think this will engage the players and um, here's kind of what we want to do. And then we do like all of that admin stuff, which like not to knock it off, but like sometimes there are external deadlines from senior leadership that we need to meet. Or, um, you know, a lot of times the sponsor themselves has a deadline they need to meet. And from that, we'll start to move into like the, the develop phase. But I don't want you to think I should have started off by saying like, these phases are not very clear cut. You could be planning and changing your design even when you're in the develop phase. Or if you're like really crazy and on my team, and you could be like redoing your design in the middle of your execution, which is like, if you're executing a series, definitely like be flexible with yourself. Do not be married to an idea because your design may answer the first set of questions, but then come up with another set of questions that needs to be answered within your same gaming series. Um, and so go back and revisit your design and always be changing and improving upon it. So then you come to execution, everybody comes and plays your game, and then um, they, they give you feedback. And then um, you should have some sort of report, in my opinion, like as great as it is for games to bring each like people together, um, I like I have to take notes at every meeting I'm in, otherwise I will just forget. And I assume everyone else is just as busy and has just as much going on in their lives that it's just really nice to send them like a one page, like, hey, here's what we learned, here's what we did. Just a reminder, ask, let us know if you have any questions or need more notes. Um, and that's kind of like the phases that we work through and we go through when designing a game. How do you determine success after executing a game? Um, if nobody cried, no. So <laughs> to be quite honest, nobody has cried during our games yet. Um, success after a game would be meeting at least one of our objectives. And so I think a lot of merit comes from what you set out to do from the beginning. So if you give yourself too lofty of goals, your game isn't going to be successful because you're going to be reaching um, for goals that aren't achievable. I think there's so many things you have to consider, um, who your players are, who your sponsors are, that ultimately success will come down as if you made progress towards your ultimate goal. And sometimes, um, like I've been in games or seen games where sponsors have, you know, 10 objectives and, you know, 
It's about answering at least one of those objectives and then determining how to get after those other nine of maybe a little bit better, maybe faster, this and that. So um, I don't I don't know if there's like a direct success measure. Like, is there a direct success measure in life? No. Exactly. It's not quite so binary. There's a spectrum of success, I guess. And right. I would love it if it was like, oh, hey, you have to beat the big bad guy, like in video games, like, Mm -hmm. um, what was it, Mario, you're like boss levels, you beat Bowser, and then you've like won the game. I don't, I, there's not that type of thing in war games. (laughs) You don't beat the boss and win. I think we're all wondering, working in war game design, are you better at playing games are you a better gamer than the average person um if you're talking video games that require dexterity probably not um my aforementioned little brother had to be on facetime with me for 45 minutes to get me my headphones my xbox and my xbox live into overcooked too which is like not a very serious game um so i would not say like i'm a better gamer just by virtue of like that recent endeavor. Um, I think I have the ability to pick out a good game more now, right? Like I just bought a game and to me, what, and my partner, what's valuable for a board game that we're going to be playing with each other is replayability. Like, I don't want something sitting on my shelf that I've only played once and I can only play once. So I played a game with um, my family when I was actually in Seattle and I ended up buying that game for myself because one, the artwork was beautiful. Two, it was about unicorns. And three, um, it was like very easily replayable and I could see it, like I could see him and I doing, playing this game over a glass of wine. Um, So I'd say like in that aspect, it's made me a better gamer where like I kind of know what I want personally for myself. I know what will work for different types of like social situations and and stuff like that. If you could recommend your favorite game to the listeners, what would it be? That's literally so tough because there's so many different types of games. Um, I don't know if it's still out there, but Kickstarter had a game called Collect It All or CIA And that one was really fun to be competitive for like intelligence gathering um, with like one or two other players. I would say for a, let me think, for a two player game, if you wanna do a war game, definitely um, Twilight Struggle, like work through that. Access and Allies, particularly I think 1942, which is online. It's another good one um, if you're just starting out. But of course, like if you are a more advanced gamer, feel free to reach out to me and I'll, I'll send you some recommendations. Um, I just don't want to tell anyone to like How do about- a four hour campaign in a coin series game. How about within video games, uh, which, you know, does often feature excessive violence and, and bloodshed. But I'm curious, you know, if you've seen anything particularly impressive within that. Um, so I, I like playing cooperative games, like, cause games to me, video games in particular are supposed to be relaxing. And so my partner and I really like overcooked too, which is like a little bit kitschy also like has been really nice in him understanding how difficult it is to like make a meal. He's like, what? You have to get the burger meat ready and then cook it and then also like put the toppings on it and cook the toppings. It's like, yeah, dude, like that's how it works. Like that's, so he's like understanding my struggle of like working in kitchens and restaurants like all throughout college now. I'm like, yes, let's go. Um, Is this like advanced cooking mama? It, yes. Oh my goodness. I'm so glad somebody else played that like DS game way back when. It is totally advanced cooking mama. Um, You can have like two to three players and then like, the game throws weird things at you, like one level throws fire at you. My final question to you, Lexi, is what do you consider to be the most pressing security threat of our time? Loaded question, I know. It totally is. Um, So in my personal opinion, it's an idea and it's this 
this idea that we shouldn't care about one another because we're in different countries and that we shouldn't be aware of what's happening in other countries. I like even throughout CNC and now my graduate studies, I look at a lot of the wars of the past and um, quite honestly, there's just kind of this fundamental misunderstanding or inability to understand the what's important to the other party that you're going to war with. Um, a, a coworker and I were just lamenting about kind of uh, Leopold and the Belgians and then the Boer War and stuff like that, where you do see countries that have power now, Western powers and, you know, Western European countries. And then there's just kind of this like sentiment or write-off of countries that they used to be colonies of. Um, or I should say the, the colonizers. Uh, and I, I see that a lot in uh, the Congo uh, with the recent elections in Uganda. And I could walk into anyone's office off the street and say like, hey, why is the election in Uganda important? They'd be like, I don't care, it's Africa. Um, and so to me, there's just kind of like this awareness and this like social responsibility. And that's probably something that like, yeah, for me sitting here in my house, I am a little bit privileged to say is, is the biggest issue. Definitely like, you know, there's other more pressing issues for some people in their physical security, like climate change, uh, lack of food, stuff like that. But ultimately, I think um, if you're a US citizen or citizen in Western Europe, kind of looking at, at what you're aware of and being conscious of, of where you are and, and what you have at your disposal. I completely agree. I think that we need to overcome a lot of ignorance and really recognize like the interconnectivity of everything and the importance of everything as one global system. That was wonderfully said. And we just want to thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Hopefully I did not bungle anything too much. I don't think so.